And uh, can we all agree God is faithful, isn't he? Yes. And all the things that he does and everything that he says. We are going to go ahead and get started with this parasha, which is really amazing because this parasha actually opens up with a conjunction. How many of us actually read a good book? Hmm. Right? From time to time we read one, right? And when you start a good book, uh, even a bad book for that matter, do you start a book by saying, and? Think about it. But the name of this book starts with saying, and these are the names. So this conjunction ties, basically, ties in with the last parasha in Genesis that we covered last week, folks. And why is this so important, folks? Because the Father is trying to reveal, rather, the things that he desires for his people. You know, the Torah was given, folks, so that we can learn how to walk together with one another. It wasn't meant for a legalistic uh, uh, code book, but rather for us to understand the heart of the Father. Amen? And this is the things that we need to understand as we go through the pages of the Torah. We need to understand that these, these things were given to us as examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 6 says that the, the things that were written, they were written for us as an example so that we don't what? Commit the same fallacies that they did, essentially. So we're learning through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now through Moshe, we're learning a few things. We're learning the mistakes that they did, the good things that they did. We're learning about the Messiah, but most importantly, we're also learning about us. And it's my heart to be able to share this with you so that you can fulfill your call as an evangelist or whatever the Father has for you. But most importantly, so that you can have this sermon when you do go up there. Amen? So, Shemot. We opened up last week, and hold on a second, I gotta actually make sure I have this on. Yep. We started last week, or ended last week, with what? Genesis 50, 25 through 26. And it says, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, leading up to this point, we've been, we've been talking about the, the Joseph saga, and it kind of ended last week. And now we're starting with Moses. We learned a lot about Messiah ben Joseph. What is the understanding of Messiah ben Joseph? What is the importance of understanding Messiah ben Joseph? Because there's two functions between Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. We need to understand this because a lot of times we say yes to Jesus, right? But we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. Because remember, there's two roles to the Messiah. He comes as the suffering servant, right? But he also comes as the conquering king. But the idea is that we need to understand when we said yes to him. Remember, it says that we are now to be reborn in his image. Mm -hmm. Right? We die to our sins and we are raised with him. Okay, it's that question of what are we raising when we're being raised now. And I'm not talking about the future resurrection because that's going to be Ben David. Okay, that's when he comes to conquer. And we will be in his image. We'll be an incorruptible body. Right? You know, uh, death will no longer have authority over our lives, right? Esau, Rome will no longer be crushing us. You know, all these things that we think, why are we still going through the pain that we go through? If we say yes to Jesus and he died on the cross and he shed his blood, why are we still suffering? Why is there so much injustice? Because we need to understand the function. This is the point of going back to the law, the Torah, so that we can understand the functions of the Messiah, so that we can have peace and know, okay, I'm going to endure because I know, I know that this is the function of the Messiah ben Joseph and I need to suffer like he suffered. And I'm awaiting for that time when he will come and conquer as the king. 
So what happens now with Israel? Last week we ended, we ended up with Joseph, and we noticed something last week that was very important for us to tie it in with this teaching. <coughs> Israel went into Goshen, right? And what happened? We learned it in the Hebrew, we were looking at this, that they began to what? Assimilate with the Egyptian culture. See, folks, what happened was is that they ended up buying property. According to Scripture, they were purchasing property. You know, Goshen wasn't just good enough. Now they're purchasing land. The landowners, they feel like, wow, they no longer were looking at themselves as what? As strangers and sojourners. They were looking at that as the promise, so to speak. And because of that, this kind of is now evolving. Jacob tried to, as Jacob went to Egypt as well, it says that even when we look into the Hebrew, Jacob was trying to teach them and, 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 and let them know and be aware that this was not their home, not to get so comfortable the way they were. Which now leads us to this in here. Jacob is dead now. Joseph now, it's going, he's about to die. And now this is the second generation, by the way, that we've seen of the children of Israel. So the first generation that went in had an impact on the second generation. This is why it's so important, folks, for us to teach our children to walk in the statutes of the Lord. Because what you do right now is going to set a precedent for the future, for your generation. The things that you do, because remember, kids more often than not will emulate what you do and what you say, and in some cases, even how you speak. So it is important that for us to stop setting those standards for them so they can know how to walk in righteousness. What is the Torah teaching us, folks? If we fail to do that, then we are doing a disservice to the next generation. And the idea is that we want to do a service. So it says in here, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones from here. So Joseph died, it says. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So let's look at this in Hebrew, because it says, Vayeshav Yosef et Bnei Israel. Now, if you guys notice right off the bat, we talked a lot about this Aleph Tav, and even both the ancient sages of Israel talked about this two letter that really they don't quite understand what it is, but they know it points to the divine, according to the ancient sages of Israel. But we know that Yeshua said that I am the what? The olive and the top, the beginning and the end. So we're going to connect this in here. It says, Vayishav Yosef et Bnei Israel. So it's connecting the children of Israel with the olive top, right? And said, Fakot Yifkot Elohim Etchem. He said, This word, so if you notice in here, is the Pe, Kaf, and Dalit, and it's the same in here, but it has a Yod in it. So it's Fakot Yifkatot Elohim Etchem. So he's saying, God is surely will visit you. Is this the Hebrew word, fakat, right here? And this whole thing with visiting is what we need to understand when he's telling them, God will surely visit you. Because who's saying this to them? Joseph. Joseph, essentially, at this point, is now prophesizing to the children of Israel, letting them know, this is what's going to happen. Okay? And when it does happen, this is what I want you to do, essentially. So what is fakat? To attend to? To visit? To even count, which connects with this Torah portion in the counting. But also it can relate to punishment. More often than not in scripture, when God says, I will visit, it's normally not a good thing. <laughs> Typically. I'm just saying. Not all the time. We're not going to put this and say that it's always the case. But yeah, about 70-80% of the time when he does say this, it's not usually in a good way. But, but, at the same way, in the same time, we're going to see something very prophetic because even when he visits, he visits and he passes judgment, which is punishment. But in doing that, he also spares. 
So even in the visiting, even though it's, it's, it may seem like it's harsh, he's saying that in this visited, you're going to be counted. What was the purpose of the counting connected with punishment? Well, we're going to see that as we go along with this parasha now. So look, Exodus 25 and 6 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Hashem, your God, am a jealous God, he says. Visiting, here we go again, that's God, connects the same word, pakat. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who what? Who hate me. Let me just translate that. Those who have no repentance, essentially. We're not talking about a repentant heart. We're not talking about somebody who, well, kind of missed the mark or, you know, didn't know what they were doing. These are people who literally want nothing to do with him, essentially. But there's always that clause in there. But showing steadfast love to what? Thousands of those who what? Who love me and do what? And keep my commandments. See, in scripture, there's always that connection with love and obedience, folks. Something that today we really don't understand because of our culture. You know, we don't see obedience as something that connects with love. We look at love as a feeling today. But love is not a feeling in, in the word of God, although there can be feelings involved. The root of love, it has to be fueled through obedience. Because if you love someone, you will do right by them. You know, if I say, listen, this bothers me, don't do this. Okay, you're going to obey you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna respect that. And that's essentially showing love. So he's saying in here that he's showing love to thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Which leads us now to this portion. We know that they're assimilating. We know that God is passing judgment now. And in this assimilation, we're going to connect now Pharaoh's plot. And how that connects with today. It's really, really amazing. So look, the title of this portion is what? Shemot. Right? And what does it mean? Shem. Well, when we think about today a name, okay, Richard, Jose, you know, it does, it, to us, a name means nothing today, again. But when we look in scripture, a name carries more than just a name. It means a reputation, a marking, look, as something that's branded. I didn't have time this week, folks, to really compile, uh, pile up a lot of the uh, scriptures for you, but... This right here, we'll cover it next year. This right here I'm going to share with you actually connects with the 144,000 that we read in Revelation. Because they're sealed names. This is really, really a beautiful connection. But again, just the timing this week didn't really allow me to go there. But we'll cover it again next year. But for what, for right now, this year, Shem, it actually means a name, a reputation. So when he seals you... He's essentially sealing your name. Why? Because your reputation. Not because you got a cool name. But rather it's because of the reputation that you carry. How you carry yourself. That's why in the Aaronic blessing that we do at the end of every Shabbat service, it talks about what? Putting my name upon the children of Israel. And we know that when he says that about to, you ought to bless them by putting my name upon them, well, obviously... We're not called Yohei Babe. Mm -hmm. But it's talking about the character trait of the living God. It can be upon us. Amen? So Shemot, name marking branded, right? In Exodus about 1.5, it says this. The Torah recites the name of the sons of Israel because their names allude to the redemption. 
In other words, what the sages of Israel were actually compiling with this as well is, which we see evidence of that in Revelation as well, is that when he actually is calling them by name at this point, it's because he's actually marking it. So, you know, God does, you know, he just uses one bullet and, and with one he just knocks everything out. Because the idea is that, yes, he's now passing the judgment upon the children of Israel, but at the same time, he's actually marking them for redemption. It's really, really amazing. In other words, there's a reason why they are where they are, and they did that themselves, but now he's going to show his mighty hands and delivering them from where they're at at this point. So I thought it was really, really beautiful. So the parasha starts with Exodus 1, 1, and 6. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So in verse 1 it says, So when it says, and these are the names, it actually in that word, is actually revealing the condition of the people who are actually going into Egypt. Look, the word is Eleh. And that's how it starts, Israel. So Elev means to wail. It is also connected with these. It can be used as that. But the word carries more than just that. It can mean to wail, to lament, to curse on obligation by oath. So what are we looking at in here? In other words, the names of these children of Israel who are going into Egypt. And what does Egypt mean? Troubles. Bondage. Think about it. These are the ones who, unfortunately, are wailing now because in lamenting, well, why are they wailing and lamenting as they're going into Egypt? Well, they're going into bondage. Think about it. But how did they get into bondage? You see, we need to look at the root of the cause. What caused them to get where they were at? And we're going to cover this now and here. Midrash, Midrash Tachumai says this. The prophet said, they have betrayed Hashem, for they have born alien children. Now a month shall devour them. That's out of Hosea 5.7. They're connecting this with Hosea 5-7 because what they're doing is they are now assimilating with the Egyptian culture. And remember that that was not what the Lord wanted for them. The idea was that they would go there until the famine was the famine was over. They were to return back because, again, that was not their home. So why were they called alien children, it says? Because they gave birth to children and did not circumcise them. This teaches you that after Joseph died, the sons of Israel disregarded the mitzvah or circumcision. They said, let us become like Egyptians. And, you know, it kind of connects, again, this is what the Shadiyas are saying, but the, uh, in realities, when you look in the written word of God, this is exactly what was happening. Although we don't read that it says, let us become Egyptians, they were certainly acting that way. Again, they were making themselves at home, purchasing land, disregarding a lot of things that Hashem, that they needed to do, that they didn't do. And in that, we see a lot of connection with us today. This is the aftermath of what we see in the world today, folks. Think about it. You know, how many people actually know about Hashem? How many people know about the Word? How many people are really interested for that matter? It's because of that right there. Hosea 5, 7 says, They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have born alien children. Now a new moon shall devour them with their, and with, with their fields. In the time of Hosea, you know, can we all agree? Scripture is cyclical. This is what's so great. You don't have to really second guess. A lot of the things that we read are somewhat cyclical. When the time of Hosea, we read something similar that I believe we're starting to see here in the Exodus account. In the time of Hosea, they have completely neglected the Lord. Why? Because what was the reason 
times were well. As a matter of fact, one of the themes in the, in, in the time of Hosea is that Hashem raised a prophet called Hosea to go to the ten tribes, the northern tribes of Israel, to a people who, by the way, were doing great. Think about the job that Hosea had in his hand. You need to go and prophesy to these people to repent from their sins. But yet the fields are doing great. Everybody's prospering. The rains come at the perfect time of the year. Everybody's wallet is full. Yeah, they're going to receive that news, haven't they? And this is kind of like what we've seen in here. This is why the sages connected Hosea chapter 5, 7, what was happening here in the Exodus. Because in the Exodus, their wallets were full, their own land, everything was going great. And let's face it, folks, we tend to do that. When things are going too well, that is, we tend to forget God, don't we? You know, God who? Oh, yeah. We need to be careful. That's why the proverb says, you know, do not give me so much that I may forget your name. But they not give me so little that I may go ahead and defile your name either. But render the right portion for me every single day. Amen? So look, Hosea, Jeremiah 32, 36 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. This is kind of similar to what's happening in the Exodus account. Again, I'm showing you some references later because, again, we're going to see that Israel is going to commit this sin later down the road again. You know, we're not learning from our prior lessons. That's the problem. So it says in here that he is the one who what? Who drove them out in his anger. This is kind of alluding to the same thing that's happening in the Exodus. In the Exodus, what we're looking at is exile. They are now going into exile. They're now going into Egypt. Why? Because, unfortunately, they have forgotten the creator. So it says, he drove them out in anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in what? In safety. Isaiah 54, 6 and 8 says, for Hashem has called you like a wife deserted in grief. In spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassions, I will gather you. You see, this is the thing that we need to understand. That yes, the Father will scatter us when we unfortunately reject Him, but in His love and His mercy, and through our teshuvah, which is our repentance, it will cause Him to what? To gather us again. We're seeing, again, foundations right now in this parsha for why these verses even exist. Why is Isaiah 54 exist? Why is Hosea 5-7 exist? Because, again, everything is cyclical. We see the foundation, and from that foundation, now you're going to start seeing all the rest of Scripture based on that foundation. So it says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, he says. You, uh, says Hashem, your Redeemer. Blessed be his name. So now, this sets up now for Pharaoh's plot in connection with, the mo with modern day. Because, you see, Pharaoh had a great idea, folks. And you really have to see it. It was genius. As a matter of fact, I will submit to you that the plot that Pharaoh used against Israel is the same plot that the Romans used with the Jews in the first century. And not just there, but we see this throughout all history. As a matter of fact, it is the same thing that we see in Nineveh. We see this everywhere. 
and that is the assimilation and how is it the pharaoh capitalized now i'm going to kind of just give you a little bit of history on this pharaoh is concerned now because the children of israel outnumber him and the egyptians so at this point now he is concerned that if an enemy comes he, that israel will side with the enemy and basically overthrow egypt out of power so since he cannot in any way shape or form just go to war with Israel right then and there because he's afraid he's going to lose. He's going to come up with a master plan that I submit to you is what, why we are where we are today. So let's look at this plot in here, amen? Exodus 1, 8 through 10 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now let's face it, who cannot have known Joseph? All the great things that Joseph did, the, the reality, the fact that even Egypt existed was because of Joseph and what he did. So we're going to see really what this means. It says that a new king arose that I know Joseph. It says, Notice that the Joseph is connected with the Aleftah, connecting to the Messiah as well. So there's a, there's a beautiful message in here. So it says, This word, when it says, it's from the word come. And come literally means an enemy rising against you. Okay? But what's also interesting about come, it also means a first or a former. So, I mean, there's lots of, uh, uh, of, of medrash concerning, well, this was the new pharaoh? Was this really a new pharaoh? Was this the old pharaoh? Really, it doesn't matter, in my opinion. But one thing that the word does reveal by come is that it was a former. So, possibly it could have been the same pharaoh. Who did not know Joseph? Now, this whole word, it says, lo yada. It's from the word yodea in Hebrew. And yodea in Hebrew also means to know somebody personally as a friend, so to speak. So it's not that he didn't know the identity of Joseph, but rather he forgot the deeds of Joseph, so to speak. You know, and I mean, we face that today. You have a friend today, right? You do great things for your friend. Six months later, they don't even know who you are. They forget what you have done for them. That should not be something that's so hard to process. They forgot. Essentially, this Pharaoh forgot of all the good deeds that Joseph did for the nation of Egypt while they were in famine. So look, in the Okelos of the Torah, that is the Aramaic version of the Torah, Okelos says this, A new king arose over Egypt who did not fulfill Joseph's decree. Very interesting. Because what Onkelos was seeing also in this is that, again, the king, even if it was a new king, let's just say he was brand new king, he still would have known what Joseph did. Because in the time of famine, he would have existed. So he would have known the stories would have gone on. You know, the Egyptians noted everything down, by the way. All of this would have been written. It would have been in clay, actually. So you cannot erase it. it it's, it's something that they would have known. Wow, we went through a major famine, and this man helped us. So Joseph would have been the great icon of Egypt at that time, the savior. As a matter of fact, they call him the savior. You know, so we know that this whole thing where he did not know who Joseph was is that he had forgotten the deeds that Joseph had done. So look, moving on in here, Exodus 8, uh, 1, 8, and 10. So in verse 10, we already know that this king, which by the way, that word for Hadash, new king, Hadash can also mean to renew something. So the king could have just easily renewed everything that he had decreed upon Joseph because he had forgotten the deeds of Joseph. In other words, he didn't want to deal with the deeds of Joseph. So now what comes in here? Come, he says. Oh, let me start at 9. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So now he's fearful. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Notice that he says he's concerned also that they will escape from the land. So it's one of those things where we can't fight them because if we fight them, we'll die. They'll, they'll kill us all. So we're going to deal shrewdly with them. And this is what we want to focus on, this shrewdly. And then Onkelos of the Torah says this. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase essentially. And then in an event of war, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave the land. But I want to share this in Hebrew because in verse 10 in Hebrew it says, Haba, right? Haba nitchad kama lo. Very interesting because in the Bible translation of most of you guys, guys Bible translation, it says, come, let us deal surely with them, right? But the problem is that in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. Completely far away. This word, lo, in no way, shape, or form means them. It means to him. So it's saying, come, let us deal surely to him. But who is him is the question. Because it's not the nation of Israel. It's a singular. It's not plural. And I found this very interesting. But look, before we go into that, it says, when it says truly, it is the Hebrew word hakam. And what is hakam? He made wise, skillful, a learned man. See, this is where it gets very interesting because what Pharaoh said, you know what? We can't beat them. Unfortunately, we cannot do that. But Pharaoh started noticing, you know what? You notice how much they multiply? And he noticed that they purchased all these lands, and he noticed that they're becoming somewhat like us, Egyptians. Let's use that to gain authority over them. Let's teach them now the wisdom and the skills of Egypt. This is very amazing, folks, because you see, this is genius. It's like, you know, we can teach them our wisdom. And by the way, that wisdom that we're talking about is not just in learning how to build a pyramid. We're talking about wisdom on how to worship the gods. Because remember, what was the attribute for Egypt's prosperity? <coughs> the gods. You know, the Nile was a god. I mean, all these things, they have different gods. And let's face it, now you got a group of Bedouins who are in the desert, dwelling in tents, coming into such a beautiful nation. They see the prosperity. They see that it works. I mean, let's face it. We are very, sense, very sensitive as human beings. We get moved very easily by what we see and what we feel and what we touch. The, the realities of this life. You know, we don't look spiritually. We always look fleshly. Okay, it looks big. That means that it's big. It looks prospering. That means that you must be doing something good. And that, unfortunately, is what got the children of Israel into the mess that they were. Because now, he said, let us, he made wise, in other words. He was making them wise according to Egyptian culture and Egyptian learning and Egyptian uh, religion, essentially. So look, because of their assimilation, he used that now and said, okay, you want to be like us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you how to be really like us. And look, besides that, look, in Rashi Shemos, it says this. Let us act wisely to him. The sages say that when it says to him, it's actually, they were saying that... Uh, Pharaoh was actually talking about God himself. Because remember, to Pharaoh, remember, Pharaoh was God. So he's looking at himself as he is a deity himself. So this Hashem, this Yohei that the Hebrews are talking about, he's just another deity. 
So they're not looking at they're not looking, remember at this point, Pharaoh is not looking at Hashem as the one true God. He's just looking at him as he's just another deity. So I'm gonna deal surely with him. In other words, if we can attack their God, then we can get to the people essentially. That's the that's the usually the way the enemy works. Look in the Humasha says, Pharaoh's treacherous solution to the Jewish problem was to deceive the Jews into showing their patronism by building cities to safeguard the country's wealth. See, they knew, he knew, I mean, this is amazing, because he knew that they were already like, wow, we love the money. We love the prosperity here. He was like, well, guess what, guys? Let's become very patriotic, all of us. See, we are all one big family, and I need you guys' help, because you are very important to the contribution of this country, and you are like my family. Together, let's build Egypt. <laughs> You're getting this. That's, that was the purpose right here. Little that he knew, or little that they knew, <coughs> that they were falling right into the trap. That's why it's so important, folks, to learn the word, the Torah, so that we don't deceive them. <coughs> okay. So it says in here, as the Midrash teaches, Pharaoh set, an ex uh, set the example by joining the labor force to symbolize that everyone must help Egypt in its time of need. Look, Jewish volunteers were mobilized, frequently donning their own chains, and was as easy the next step to enslave them. In other words, now that I got you hooked, mm -hmm. and now that you feel very patriotic, right? And now that you love this wealth, and you love the culture and the country, I'm going to use that to enslave you, essentially. And this is, you know, this goes back to the prophecy that Hashem said in Samuel. If you elect a king, what's going to happen? He's going to take you home. He's going to take your flocks. He'll take your daughters. This is basically the same thing. We see the same scenario happening in here because now they're accepting Pharaoh as the king, as their sole king, and want to be a part of the rebuilding of Egypt. Something that was never commanded for them to do. Amen? Look, 1 John 2.15, to give you reference for the word of God, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This goes perfect right here. If they could have just heard this, right? They probably did. They just ignore it. Do not love the world, the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, what do you mean by not loving the world? What does that mean? Oh, he gives you the reference in here. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, that's a big one, folks. See, because now the children of Israel are acting in a very prideful way. Yeah, let's become very patriotic. Yes. The pride of Egypt. Let's let's build this empire. Folks, what they're seeing now is everything through the natural eye. They're seeing through the flesh. They're not understanding the heart of the Father at this point. And what's happening is that the love of the Father is not in them because of what they've seen in here. So it says, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is amazing. You know, the world is always going to try to entice you, folks, right? Entice you to, to follow its ways, to fall in love with its ways, to do the things that it wants you to do. But we need to stand in the will of the Father and not lean or yin towards those things. We need to stand in the truth of the Father and understand that this pride of life and the desires of the flesh, folks, don't always come in agreement with the Heavenly Father. When we do that, we will be able to prosper out there. So thus so far, what we have? Israel assimilates to Egypt, right? This renders them in a state of exile at this point. 
Pharaoh uses their desire for Egypt as a mean for enslavement, essentially. You know, and this makes perfect sense even in the natural. Let's face it, when you were a kid, you know, especially when, we, when you're very young, we desire things that are very expensive, usually, that we cannot even afford. And that's the truth. And, and a lot of times what we end up doing is we end up taking loans just to get it. Oh, we just go into debt. I mean, we enslave ourselves because of what? A desire. This is exactly what we're teaching. And for you, young generation today, that's important. Don't be enslaving yourself in the yoke of the world just because it looks good on the outside. We need to see beyond the external things, folks. We need to see the things that are in the spirit, the things that matter, and what the Father is doing. So he uses this as a means of enslavement. It's a very, very subtle trap, folks. The plan actually works. Israel becomes now enslaved. Now, the New Testament uses this also as an analogy of you being a slave to sin, which I think is a beautiful midrash, connecting it with this as well. Because why are we enslaved to sins? Because sin looks so good at once upon a time, didn't it? I mean, it looked just like the prosperity. You're just like, wow, I want exactly that. And in doing that, you became a slave. Apostle Paul actually contrasts this with being a slave to sin. But we'll cover that another day. So the plan works, right? This leads us to what? To the story now of Moses, folks. And this is where it's interesting because now what the father's doing, Joseph is done. Joseph died. Now the father's going to raise up a redeemer. Joseph was a type of a redeemer. And what is the purpose of this, of learning about these redeemers? Well, because the idea, folks, is the Heavenly Father wants us to understand the character trait of what the Messiah will look like. Because if we know what he looks like, then when he's the fake one is out there, we'll be able to spot him immediately. You see? So the story of Moshe, let's see in here. Exodus 2, 1 and 3 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Okay? In actuality, this word in Hebrew means a good child. When she could, hi when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of burl rushes and dubbed it with bit bitumen, which is kind of like an asphalt and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. I'm not going to get too, too deep into this, but we're gonna, I do want to focus in here because, you see, she says that she gave birth and she conceived a son. What's interesting is that she doesn't name the son. It doesn't say anything about her naming the son. It just says, the child. <coughs> Typically, the mothers are very quick to name their children, but we know that later he's called Moses by who? By girl's daughter. That's, and this is another teaching, folks, but there's a teaching in that concealment of his name. And we're going to cover that another day. But for right now, what I want to point out in here is that right now, he is known as the child. Okay? Now, verse 3, it says that when she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket of main bird brushes. This right here makes a connection with Genesis chapter 6, 14. You guys remember the ark? And what was happening in the ark? What was the, what was the plot that was taking place in there? Hashem was about to what? Redeem the family of Noah. The story of the ark is about the redemption of the people, the righteous ones. So now we see the child in a type or shadow of the ark. So the, the, the Torah is trying to connect us to understand 
Why is it that she put him in here? And it had to do with the redemption of Israel. But look, I want to share something with you in here. In verse 3, it says, Velo It says, when she had no more, she can no, uh, no longer hide him. That word for no longer, it is yikala. And this is, of course, yikal. But this word for yakal means power or strength. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this word also is that it has another word in here that you can pull out from. It is kala. What is kala? The bride. It's very, very beautiful. You see, veloi kala ot, and this word for ot is longer. She no longer could hide him. So, when it's talking about that she can no longer hide him, according to this word in here, ot, by the word ot means like a repetition. That means that she actually tried this several times in hiding. That's why she said well, she can no longer do it. That means that she was trying to hide it before several, several times. But what the Torah is trying to teach us something about Moses, but in this story here, this applies to you as well, because are you not considered a bride? See, there's a connection in here with Moses being in this basket and the bride being in the basket. Wow, that sounded weird, didn't it? But the reality is that, yes, you are going to be hidden in a basket in a time to come. Look at this. So it's talking about the kalash. She cannot hide it any longer. So she took for him the bat gome. What is this word for tebat? It's from the Hebrew word ba or tebat, which means an holy ark. That is the ark. This is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 6, 14 for Noah's ark. You know when it says Noah's ark? Is this right here, the bar. And it's talking about something that's, that's, again, something that is holy. If you notice that you have the taf and the bite and the, and the taf again, bat. Bat means daughter also. And the taf is the cross. The bite is the house. This is talking about a sanctuary, if you want to call it, or a safe haven, if you want to call it, where now this child is put into there. But... The Torah is revealing more than just the child. It's also revealing yikla, which is the word kala, which means the bride also. So this, we can say also that even in the translation says the child is alluding more than just the child. It's also alluding to a bride who will be hidden, who will be concealed. Does that ring bells to you guys today? You know? So look, let's continue in here. So it says, but the sham, so she placed by him, or to go in, the child. Look what it says for the child. It says, et hayelet in Hebrew. What is the Aleph top connecting with the Ha? Now, I'm going to share something with you folks. I don't know how much Hebrew you know, but you see this definite article right here, Ha? In Hebrew, Ha means the. Okay? So, what's the point of having the Aleph top there if it's a definite article already? We don't say the, the child. Because the definite article means pointing to something definite. They say it's the. But if that's the case, then we have two ducks. The, the child. That's bad grammar, even in Hebrew. And, you know, the father doesn't stutter. So this is the thing in here. Is what he's showing us is that there's a connection. There's a messianic connection with this, by the way, no nameless child who is in the <coughs> basket folks. Oh my God, this brings so much value. So, so, et, ba, et, ha, yelet, 
It says, Bet Hashem Basuf Al Shefat Hayaor. So look, let's look at this, folks. The child, we see something very similar in Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 15. It says, Now when they have departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Why? And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child. <coughs> to what? <coughs> to destroy him. What was happening with Moshe? Pharaoh was looking to what? Destroy this child. And we see in the New Testament that we have now, not Pharaoh, but we have Herod now, who is trying to destroy, by the way, the child as well. That's the Messianic prophecy that we see in here. Look. When it says, Et HaYeled, it's talking about, the Torah is already pointing that the promised seed of the Alekta will be a seed that is going to be hunted. <clears throat> somebody's going to want to try to destroy it. This is why it's so amazing. I get excited about these things. We're reading prophecy being fulfilled. And if we go to Matthew, we see this fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3, uh, 2, 13 to 15. So let's move it on in here. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Oh, this is just ringing so much bell. Because you see, Yeshua had to go to Egypt to be hidden. Just kind of like Moses was hidden. And now the father's calling him out of Egypt. But it's interesting that Moses is a type of Mashiach, right? A type of Messiah. And the father called Moses out of where? Really, really beautiful connection when you start seeing it in here. So look at this. Revelations 12, 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, if you read Revelation 12 from the beginning, it says that the child was taken and was hidden because the dragon was coming after the child. But if you read a few verses, again, I didn't put the whole thing in there, but if you read further down, it says that the dragon didn't just go after the, the child. Now it's extending, saying that the dragon is going after the seed of the child as well. This is what we talked about when I just read to you in the Hebrew, on that part right there, that is talking about the bride. Remember, guys, remember when I said this also means the bride? Here, just refresh your memory very quickly. This is why it says in here, when she can no longer hide him, this word for no longer can also mean the bride. This is what Revelation is talking about. The, the dragon went after the bride as well. It's this beautiful connection. And we see this all the way back in the story of Moses, starting off in the story of Moses. So it says, well, out of, this could be fulfilled. So out of Egypt, I called my son. And Revelation 12, 17, thus the dragon became furious and with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who what? Those who keep the commandments of God. See, the dragon is not just going to go after everybody. The dragon is only going to go after the ones who are marked. Let me put it this way. The ones who have the name. What is the title of this portion? Names. Covering. Branded. Marking. The ones who have the character trait. The ones who stand out like a sore thumb. Because you're keeping the commandments of Hashem. Where are you today? You're here on Shabbat. Gathering with your family. You're doing something that most of the world is not doing today, folks. You stand out as a light to the world. And for those who know you, 
They know where you are today. <laughs> or at least the ones that they know me, they know where I'm at today. They don't even call me on Shabbat. Not because I tell them to call me, it's just they don't want to call me. Not on Shabbat. They don't want to deal with me on Shabbat. <laughs> you see, that's the whole point. You stand. You are branded. You are marked. And this is what it's talking about. But now, I'm not trying to scare you, but the dragon will come after your seed. Now, you may be the seed alive, maybe. Maybe not. And if it's not you, maybe it's the next generation, maybe the generation after that. But one thing for certain is that you play a role in this. You play a role in establishing the name. So it says, those who are keeping the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. So it's not just those Torah keepers who are keeping the law, right? So perfect, but they're denying the Messiah. It's saying those who keep the law and, there's that and, and have what? The testimony, testimony of, of Yeshua. Yeshua. So it's both. You know, one doesn't neglect the other. Both together. This is what you are. When you have both of those folks, believe it or not, you are a major threat to the prince of the air right now. Because you have the, you are the marked ones. So rejoice in that, folks. Not to scare you, but to rejoice in that. Look, Shadows of Messiah, Volume 2 says this. Moses' early life a lot follows a pattern of revelation. <laughs> I thought this was very interesting. Concealment and revelation, and then concealment. God concealed him and hid him among the Egyptians. Moses revealed himself to Israel when he killed the Egyptians. Then he disappeared into Midian and remained there for 40 years, right? After the 40 years, he reappeared to what? To redeem Israel. So with, with, uh, with the uh, shadows of Messiah, the, the authors are proposing in here is that there's a pattern that we need to be looking for, which I believe is very true. And this pattern is of being concealed and being revealed. Being concealed and being revealed. There's a, a major teaching in the Messianic, uh, in Jewish, Messianic Jewish movement over in Israel that they say that the Messiah is actually hidden in Edom. And who is Edom? Rome. In other words, he doesn't look like a Hebrew. He looks like a Roman. Kind of like Joseph. Joseph looked like what? An Egyptian. But really, he was a Hebrew. A lot, a lot, of, really, a lot of good food on this. Look, Ruth Rabbi 5.6 says this. Rabbi Berakia said in the name of Rabbi Levi, the latter redeemer will be like the first redeemer, he says. Now, this is wisdom that I believe we need to get from folks. Because, you see... The concept and the understanding of Messiah did not originate with Christianity. I'm ready to tell you that. The Pharisees believed in a Messiah. <laughs> so they had it before uh, third century Christianity evolved. So they understand the, and the foundation of a Messiah, folks, actually started way back with the Jewish people in the first century, even prior to that. It's in the Torah. So we need to understand what is this pattern of the Mashiach so that we can get a better understanding of the Torah. Look, so he says the, the latter redeemer will be just like the first redeemer. Just as the first redeemer revealed himself and later was hidden from them, so the latter redeemer will be revealed to them and then be hidden from them. This is, listen to what this rabbi says. It's amazing how much they knew. Look, he says in here, he who believes in him talking about the Messiah, the Redeemer, will live. And he who does not believe will depart to the Gentile nations and they will put him to death. This was written, folks, 
like 300 years before even Christ came into the picture. It's amazing. I mean, verbatim, what they wrote is exactly what happened. He who believes will live. This is not what Yeshua said. He who believes in my words will live forever. This is what we're talking, folks. The Redeemer will be one just like Moses. So let's look with Moses. He will be a type of a Messiah. His character is an example of what Messiah would do, essentially. Okay? The Torah reveals these characters to use as a reference for the real Messiah when he comes into the picture. Why am I presenting this, folks? Because we have an epidemic out there today. Everybody knows Messiah, and they're like this with him. Right? But there's a big, a big, very, very big issue. And that is, I will submit to you today, what we have out there today presented is a false messiah. There's no doubt about it, folks. If we go back to scripture, it doesn't fit the character. What do we read about the character trait of a false messiah in the Bible? <coughs> Anybody know? Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13 gives you, literally, verbatim, what is what a re the false messiah will look like? The prophet Daniel talks about the lawless one. The false messiah, what he will come to do. And what was the words that Daniel shared in the word, in the scriptures? He would change times and seasons. That's important, folks. Not for us to be angry, not for us to go out there and slaughter our brothers and sisters, but rather for us to now learn the word, use the sermon, and bring this revelation to them. Because we have a duty, we have a responsibility. I'm not saying that you need to go out there now when you're 16 and start slaughtering people with, with the Torah. I'm saying that now that this is presented, you can learn how to appropriately speak to people. Let's face it, folks. You can either kill when you speak, or you can give life for you. But still give the same message. Not alter the message. You can still say, listen, this is wrong because of this, this, and this. And a person may take that very, very welcomely because the way you deliver the word. And I can go ahead and say exactly the same words that you say, and they just completely shut me off. It's, again, how we deliver the message. So we understand now through Moses why this is important because of what we have today. Look, Luke 24, 44, Messiah himself said this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now he died, he resurrected, and now he's going to give him the great commission. And just before the great commission, this is what he tells him. That everything written about who? Me. Me in where? The law of Moses. Where is Yeshua in the law of Moses? He said everything that Moses wrote about me. But the problem is that we don't see Jesus Christ anywhere in the law of Moses. We don't see the word Jesus Christ nowhere in the first five books of the Torah. Was he making that story up? He wasn't, folks. You see, this is why we go through the Torah cycles. He said everything was written about me. We see the character we learned last, uh, last week on the last parsha. We learned about Joseph. Now we're going to pick up on Moses to have a greater revelation of what is this Messiah and what he looks like. So he says, everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and where the prophets and the psalm must be fulfilled, he says. Then he opened their minds, it says, to understand scriptures. 
You know, folks, if we take the Messiah out of the Torah, it's confusing. If we put the Messiah in the Torah, I promise you, it makes perfect sense. And that's why he said that, you know, even at this point, by the way, he said, you know, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This was the disciples that they were talking to. These men were studying Torah since they were knee high. And they still couldn't understand and fathom a lot of these things. How much more us today think about it? That's why it's important for us to understand the Messiah in the Torah and not separate him from the Torah. Keep him where he belongs. He belongs there. So we have fully understanding what is his heart for us. Look, John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him. We have found who? The Messiah. But look what he says. Of whom who? Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Philip came excited saying, we have found the Messiah that the prophet Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets, Jeremiah, they were talking about him. We have him. He's here. Wow. But again, it still begs the question, where is his name? We don't, we don't read Jesus Christ is here. That's why, folks, that's why we study. Because it's not going to be revealed by the name. Although in some parts we do read about Yeshua. But the reality is it's going back to the original language and seeing where he's at. For instance, in here we read about the Et Hayelet, the child. This child has an Alectah connection that's connecting to the Messiah. That we read that Yeshua talks about what's going to happen in the latter days with the bride and with he himself when he had to be hidden because Herod was coming against him. These are things that they would have seen, they would have known, and they would have understood. It would have made sense. Oh, wow, that's what that means. And what a blessing that we have it here today with us, folks. Look. John 5.45. Uh -huh. And this is, I'm going to end with this, folks. John 5.45-47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, he says. This is very important. There is one who accuses you, Moses. Now, who is the audience that he's talking to in here? The Pharisees, the Jewish Pharisees who were holding to Moses as, you know, the decree and the, the, you know, the law and whatnot. He's saying that the very one who they're holding on as authority, they said is the very one that's going to condemn you. Now, it begs the question, if that is true, what he said here, does that mean that there's going to be a separate judgment for Gentiles? Because if Moses is going to judge them, and he says on the latter days, he says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Right? So if Moses is going to accuse them, does that exempt Gentile believers who come into his faith? Are they going to be exempt from Moses accusing them as well? Well, folks, we read later on through Peter and John and even in Revelation and even through Isaiah the prophet who speak about this judgment that the Father is going to give in the latter days, or in that day, rather. And that judgment, folks, is going to be on his Torah. Because, you see, to say that he's going to use Moses for the Jews, but then he's going to use some other standard, I don't even know which one would be, for Gentiles, right? That means that his word is not holy. That's not holy judgment, then. Because then, what does that make a difference? That if he has to keep Sabbath, but he doesn't then the Sabbath is not holy then. 
it's only holy for a specific group, but then it's not really holy per se. Because I mean, we can say the same thing about the Qumran. Is it a, a holy book? <coughs> well, for a group might be. But is it really a holy book then? No, it's not. And in the same way in here. If Moses is the one who's going to accuse them, and he's going to judge the world with righteous judgment, there's only one righteous judgment. When we look in the history of the kings, folks, the kings of Israel have to pass judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And what was the requirement for the king in order to pass judgment? He had to have a high priest in the courtroom. That's one thing. The high priest needs to be there. And he had to have a copy of the Torah. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that they needed to learn that. The kings needed to learn that Torah from the beginning to the end. Because they were passing judgment on the people and the nation of Israel. So Romans chapter 11 says that you've been grafted in, right? So, I don't know, kind of makes sense. If you've been grafted in, then Moses is the one who's going to stand on that day. Why are we studying Moses now? It's important for you to understand Moses. Because as you learn Moses, you're learning Yeshua, your Messiah. Look, he says in here, For if you believe Moses, right? You will believe me, he says. You realize the words that he's saying? He's saying that if you believe Moses, Jesus is saying this. If you believe Moses, you will believe me, he says. Why? For he wrote about me. But, I love this, if you do not believe in his writings, how many people actually believe in the writings of Moses today? Very seldomly. Look what he says. Emmet, truth. No sugarcoating. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my works? Ouch. So if we believe in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Mashiach, then we have to believe in Moses. And now I wanted to stop in here because next week we're going to pick up and we're going to pick up a little bit on what I wasn't able to cover this week. And now see how this is going to evolve, this redemption that Moses is going to bring upon the children of Israel. You know why we need to learn this? Because it's going to look the same way in the latter days, folks. We can follow. You know, you don't have to go and, you know, go to 1-800-PSYCHIC to find out what's going to happen in the future. Just read the word. You don't have to have a parking lot prophet come and tell you what's going to happen. Just read the word. Learn the Torah. Learn the foundation. Have a solid foundation so that you will be able to put a lot of these dots together and have a good clue of what's happening out there. So this Messiah that's going to come is going to be one. The true Messiah is going to be one in the way of Moses. And he's going to be called out of Egypt. And some to a degree, think about this, folks. Moses was in the courts of Egypt. He was already chosen and he looked like an Egyptian. This is two witnesses that we read already. That the Messiah looks like a foreigner. Looks like a foreigner. But it's not. He's concealed and he's hidden. We saw that with Joseph, after he was concealed looking like an Egyptian. And now we see it with Moses, who looks like an Egyptian. The very man that is said, who made you a ruler over us, is the one that the Father is calling out, the shepherd, and take him out of Egypt. So we'll end with this, folks, for this week. Amen.
He's going to touch your mouth. So we also see this with Moses in our Torah connection here in Exodus 4.10, because he's also a prophet who is going to go speak God's words to the nation, just like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Yes. So, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since, I have, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Now there's an interesting thing here. Moses saw himself as slow of speech and of tongue. He's not an eloquent speaker. This is how Moses saw himself. And he might have been very well true. But he had a teacher, right? So the less Moses knew, the more he could say everything I know God taught me. Which is a good thing. Because what is the number one best-selling book in the history of this planet? Bible. The words Moses wrote. And he's slow of speech. <laughs> so you can literally say everything he knew God taught him. And that's a good thing. So really the kind of the point we're getting across here <clears throat> is uh, the Lord teaches us what to say. Now, to point out the obvious, this means that we need to learn what he is teaching. Right? So if he's going to teach something, we need to learn what he's teaching. <clears throat> you know, it's just kind of an obvious thing. I, I can't just go teach at a wall. It's not going to learn anything. You can't go teach at somebody who's not listening because they're not going to learn anything. Mm -hmm. Same way, somebody who wants to learn, they're not going to learn anything unless there's somebody teaching them. There's this process here. Now, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit does teach us. I'm not going to uh, you know, put the Holy Spirit in a box and say, you know, it's only this way. No. <laughs> the Lord is really capable of doing more than we even know how. But this is a process that we can expect to see in our life when we're coming into the walk of the Lord is we're going to start out in a place that we are that we don't really know what we're going to do which is good and then from that point that's when we are taught and we grow and we learn and we become mature in what the Lord wants us to do so now if we need to learn uh, <clears throat> you know any one of us who wanted to ever learn a trade you know let's say we're, we're a teenager and we're getting into the world and we let's say we want to become you know, an aeronautical engineer. First day of school, do we, do we become a professional? Do they, do they stamp us, give us the, uh, you know, the plaque on the wall and say, okay, you're a professional, you go out to work on the first day? No, it takes years. Any profession, you name one. It takes years to become a professional at something. It's just when you start out, you don't know anything. But when you're fully trained, then you're ready to work. This is a process. And we're going to look at through some people, some of the people in Scripture that we think, Wow, they're such good speakers. You know, they were really fulfilling God's word, but they all started from somewhere, just like us. We'll go right here with John the Baptist in Luke 180. <clears throat> and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John the Baptist didn't, you know, all of a sudden when he was born the same day, you know, he wasn't born with the camel hair garment. He wasn't born yelling, repent, instead of, you know. When he was born, he was screaming, and he was a child, and he was helpless. He had to grow up and learn to be who he was. Amen. Also, the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the voice Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Prophet Samuel had a lot of, lot of important things to say. He was speaking to kings. He just didn't pop out saying that. He had to grow. Also Samson, Judges 13, 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. Now we're all familiar with the big, strong Samson, right? He could rip the gates off of a city wall and go running around with them and throw them on the top of a mountain, right? But before Samson became so strong, he was helpless for years and years. When he was born, 
when he was a child growing up, he was absolutely completely helpless and he had to rely on the people around him to protect him. So, now these are a few examples right here. Now, uh, <clears throat> I'm gonna show an example of the Messiah when he uh, emptied himself of you know, all, of his, all of his glory and came down and dwelt in a human body. In Luke 2.39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Also a few verses later in verse 52. And Yeshua increased Grace. in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So really what I'm saying right here is if you are human, you are born and then you grow. We don't just, all of a sudden we're just perfect in every way. It's a process. I mean, it's hard to find an example where this doesn't happen. Yes, the Holy Spirit is capable of really doing anything, but in our walk here, this is what we can expect the process of going through. That way we don't get these really high hopes and then when we just have to grow and learn like the next person, you know, we don't get disappointed. It's a whole process here. And uh, <clears throat> Hashem's a God of order. And he set up, you know, you know, the congregation of Israel. He set up the nation. He didn't call out the individuals of Israel to go do their own things. He called out the nation of Israel together. And he set up a body together so his people could all live with each other. And there's a purpose for it. We'll go here to Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Messiah until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful screams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Messiah, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Now that is what we all want. We want the body to grow up. And the way we do this is we need the whole body. We need every joint with which it is equipped. And these are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. You know, and even as we learn in Acts, we have the ones who will go out there and wait the tables. Everybody's involved. You know, iron sharpens iron. You know, a sword swinging through the air is not going to get sharpened. You need the people around you to do it so that you will grow into mature manhood. Because if you remain as a child, if you remain as the children, that's when you are tossed to and fro, you know, by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. That is when you are caught up and you will fall for human cutting and these deceitful schemes. It's when you are a child. Now, if we want to grow into maturity so that we don't fall for this, that's why we need the body to help us become sharp. And also see here in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but not in your thinking. But in your thinking, be mature. Colossians 1, 28, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature to Messiah. So how do we present ourselves and each other to Messiah. It is through teaching, because that is how we grow and learn. You know, this is just a, such a basic concept. You know, you get, you get a little child, you know, he just doesn't learn calculus when he's five years old. I mean, it's a process of getting up there. Even with the things of the Lord, we, we take the time to learn. <clears throat> also, the Great Commission, we've all heard of this, right? You know, go out and make disciples. Well, let's see what that's all about. 
Matthew 28, 18. And Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is where modern religion has really kind of dropped the ball because they're really good at making disciples. I mean, they'll make hundreds and thousands of them at a time. I mean, they're good at that. But the problem though, is they forget verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And because they kind of leave that part aside, this is where the body remains as children. And that is how come so many people out there have remained in that, in that state where they will fall for the... For the deceitful teachings. They'll fall for any wave of doctrine that comes by. It's because when they were made a disciple, nobody taught them. Nobody helped bring them up into maturity. And that can be the real problem. So teaching is a very important thing. And the teaching we're supposed to teach is the things that he has commanded them. So what is this teaching? So we're going to look at Titus 2.1. But as far as you teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? Well, we're going to go through the process of elimination and find this out. We'll go to Matthew 59. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, now, this is going to take a whole long time to go through a whole teaching on the commandments of men. So, commandments of men are just the things that people, it's like the church traditions that people put above the word of God. It's the things, if you see your brother not doing it, you persecute him over it. Mm -hmm. But it's not a written commandment. It's one that your forefathers may be made of. But it's not found in the Word of God. It's traditions. Amen. These are the traditions that the church has come up with. And most churches today, <clears throat> most of what they teach is traditions of men, the commandments of men. And the Messiah says right here that is vanity. Now, I'm no rocket scientist, but vanity does not sound like sound doctrine. <laughs> okay, what is sound doctrine? We'll go to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, now profitable teaching, that would fall under the umbrella of sound doctrine, wouldn't it? Because a sound doctrine would have profitable teachings in it. What are profitable teachings? All scripture. So says Paul. Now, as Paul was writing this back in the first century, and he was putting this on the ink, <clears throat> he wasn't referring to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as all scripture. He was referring to the Tanakh. That is what they had at that point. Yes. The New Testament wasn't canonized until after Apostle Paul was already long and dead. So when he was saying all scripture, he was referring to the law of Moses. He was referring to the prophets, the writings. That's where they all at this point. So <clears throat> the profitable teachings are found in the scriptures, according to Paul's reference points at that time. So what are these teachings that we find in the scriptures? Well, Leviticus is... The law in there, right? It's part of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> now this is interesting because in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says we're all a royal priesthood, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're all priests, we need to know what the priests are teaching. Right. So we'll go ahead and go to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, and we're going to see what the priests are commanded to teach. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. That's yeah. Mm. That's so as a priest, we are supposed to preach or teach sound doctrine, which is found in the scriptures. And the scriptures tell us that this is to teach the law of Moses to the people as a priesthood. What about disciples? We all want to be disciples, right? We all want to be disciples of the Messiah. Well, what do the disciples of the Messiah look like according to scripture? 
Let's go to Isaiah 8.16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Also four verses later in verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. <clears throat> you are a disciple. That means you have to have the law sealed in you. I'm also commanded to be a light to the nations, right? Well, if you're not speaking according to the law and to the testimony, there's no light in you, which means you cannot be a light to the nations. Also, many of us are parents, right? What, what are parents supposed to teach? Go to Psalm 78, 5, 7. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So as parents, we are supposed to teach our children the law that was appointed in Israel. That's the Torah of Moses. And their children are supposed to teach their children and their children and their children forever. <clears throat> but is it just head knowledge? Because lots of people know who the law is, right? Or who Moses is, who wrote the law. But why? It's to keep his commandments. That's the point. So in conclusion of all this, we are humans, so we all start from somewhere. Don't beat yourself up about that. And it takes time to grow into maturity, and Hashem provides teachers that help in this process. And by learning and growing in the kingdom, you are making a substantial impact on the next generation. As mature servants, we can teach each other, <clears throat> we can teach the next generation the things of Hashem, and then they'll teach the next, and then they'll teach the next. And it all takes order, godly order to do this. It takes the body that he has set up for this process to work. We're not thinking outside the box. We're following the instructions he left. And that today is the message, and shalom. Oh, yeah. So our New Testament portion opens up with uh, the declaration that as the time of the promise drew near, which Elohim had sworn to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Mitzvahim. It is a reflection. Uh, let me back up a little bit. Who's talking here? It's Stephen. Stephen. Stephen has been preaching the good word, the good news, the gospel, if you will. And some men have come against him, saying that he is blaspheming that he is saying things that are not true and claiming God in them. And now he's standing before the Sanhedrin, defending himself. He basically goes through the entire story of the lineage from creation through Adam up until Yeshua. And at this moment, he is defending himself, telling the story of Abraham and then into Moses. And so he is reflecting in Genesis. Back to Genesis 15, verse 13, where it says, And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. And also, in verse 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 6, and I shall make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your seed also could be counted. Stephen is using this scripture as a story of what must take place that Messiah Yeshua could, should come to die for the nation, to die for the world, and that he had been crucified and resurrected. And at this point in time, he reaches the story of Moses, who was a 
type and shadow of Messiah. He says, until another sovereign arose who did not know Joseph. And we heard from Pastor today that this particular sovereign, this Pharaoh, possibly chose not to know, to follow through with the decrees that Joseph had set forth for the land of Egypt. And the scripture says, having dealt treacherously with our race, this one mistreated our fathers, making them expose their babies so that they should not live. I wanted to focus briefly on that word expose. It is the Greek word ekthetos, which means to cast out, to expose, as in to perish. In other words, they wanted these boys to die. Whatever was necessary to cause these baby boys to die, Pharaoh wanted it to happen. And I noticed that it's interesting in our parasha that it actually says that at one point all of the boys Pharaoh was even willing to lose the boys of the generation of his own people, just as Herod was willing to do. Our scripture continues. At that time, Moshe was born, and he was well-pleasing to Elohim. He was reared three months in the house of his father. It's interesting that as a baby, he was well-pleasing to Elohim. I took that as meaning that Elohim had certainly chosen him to lead his people, to be a redeemer of his people, well before he ever came to be. But just as he knew you and me before the foundation of the earth, he knew Moshe. He had a plan set in place for Moshe. But when he was exposed, the daughter of Pharaoh took him up and reared him as her own son. And yet, though it says he was exposed, he was also watched over, was he not? By his own sister, to make sure, to see what would happen. And when Pharaoh's daughter took him in, <coughs> Moses' own sister went and said, what should we do? What, would you like me to call one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for, him, for you? It's all part of the plan, is it not? And Moshe was instructed in all the wisdom of the Mitzrites and was mighty in words and works. So in Pharaoh's house, he learned everything and was given the best of Egypt. As being brought up as the child of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses would have been given all of the finest of Egypt, including the education that he received. And yet, the Midrash explains that he actually received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guided him in his knowing. And I'm going to get to that here in just a moment. And when it, he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And that connects back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. In those days it came to be when Moshe was grown that he went out to his brothers and looked at their burdens, and he saw a Mitzrayan striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. The Midrash Tanchuma says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown up. Meaning, does not everything grow up? Doesn't every child born grow up? Don't the weeds and the trees and the, and the plants and the birds and the animals, don't they all grow up? Do not men and beasts and animals. Why then is this said? It teaches us that he matured to an un, unusual degree. He had great understanding. It says, and he went out to, to, unto his own brethren. This righteous man went out on two occasions, and the Holy One, blessed be he, recorded them. This is one of those moments. The verse he went out the second time indicates that he went out twice. Kind of plain and simple there. 
It says, and he looked upon their burdens. Well, what is the meaning of, and he looked? Well, he looked at the men as they labored, and he cried out, Woe is me, would that I could die for them. He saw the burden that was put on them was heavy. Though there is no labor more arduous than working with clay, he would put his shoulders to the task and help each one of them. Hence it is written, and he looked upon their burdens. Our scripture in the New Testament continues, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended and revenged him who was oppressed, smiting the Mitzrayim. And he thought that his brothers would have understood that Elohim would give deliverance to them by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses knew that there was deliverance coming. Moses knew from the Holy Spirit, the guidance of that Holy Spirit, that Hashem would soon be redeeming his people. The time was nearing. And the next day he came out and appeared to two of them as they were fighting and urged them to peace, saying, Man, you were brothers. Why are you fighting? Why do you wrong one another? The Midrash says, and, and, and he said to them that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou fellow? That is to say, why do you strike the one who is just as wicked as you? But who were these men? The Midrash goes on to say they were Dathan and Abiram, who <laughs> later said, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. <laughs> they were the ones who rebelled at the Red Sea and kept some of the manna uh, as leftovers, not believing that God would supply them with more the next day, as it is written, but some of them left it until the morning. Likewise, they were the ones who went out to gather it up on the Sabbath, which was forbidden, but were unable to find any, just as Moses had warned. They were also the ones who participated in Moses' conflict with Korah. Hence it is said it was Dathan and Abiram. They were involved in wickedness from beginning to end. Now imagine Moses encountering these two men in Egypt prior to his fleeing Egypt for 40 years, and then coming back 40 years later, to lead them out, and these two, all the while, gave him a hard time. <laughs> and they retorted, who made, you, made thee a man, a ruler, and a judge over us? This implied, you are not yet a man, indeed you are only a lad, and yet you try to act as though you are a ruler and a judge over us? <laughs> I made a note here, little did they know at that time that Moses would return to deliver them out of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> Hebrews 11, 23-26 says that by belief Moshe having been born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a comely child and were not afraid of the sovereign's commands by belief Moshe having become great refused to be called the son of the daughter of Pharaoh choosing rather to be afflicted with the people of Elohim rather than, uh, that, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time deeming the reproach of Messiah greater riches than the treasures in Mitzrayim for he was looking to the reward. That word reproach, I, need, I, I felt an urgency to look that up. I felt that that was very important. And Webster's 1828 is always a good resource when you're looking for some biblical understanding of words. And it says that, I, I like this one the most, there were a lot, but that which is the cause of shame or disgrace. So let's reread that. It says deeming that the reproach of or being the cause or sh shame of shame or disgrace of Messiah being greater riches than the treasures in, in Egypt. So he had great zeal. He would much rather be ridiculed for the truth than to live in his sin and in Egypt with all of the riches. And yet we can reflect back to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen defending himself in front of the Sanhedrin and his zeal for God, that he would rather be the reproach 
than to tell a lie, than to cover what he knew, because he knew that the truth was so much better than that lie. Stephen had great zeal. And in that moment, shortly after chapter 7 into chapter 8, Stephen loses his life. But he gains it. And that's the zeal that Hashem wants for each and every one of us to have. The zeal that Moshe had. The zeal that Stephen had for his word and the truth of the Messiah and the crucifixion and resurrection. That's your new testament. Amen.